This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 99 is Jungian analyst and professor of psychiatry, Dr. Michael Escamilla in Edinburgh, Texas. He graduated cum laude with a bachelor's degree in general studies from Harvard University and received his medical degree from Southwestern Medical School at the University of Texas. He then completed his internship and residency at the University of California, San Francisco, where he was an American Psychiatric Association Fellow in Psychiatric Genetics. Dr. Escamilla later went on to train as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich, where he earned a diploma in analytical psychology in 2013. Currently, he serves as department chair and professor of psychiatry at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley School of Medicine, where his research focuses on the genetics of schizophrenia. He has conducted seminal studies in the genetics of bipolar disorder and schizophrenia in Latino populations, funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, for which he has served as an advisor on psychiatric genetics research. Dr. Escamilla has worked to teach recovery-oriented psychiatric practice across the state of Texas and was the founding director of the Center of Excellence in Neurosciences at Texas Tech University Health Science Center in El Paso. In 2015, he was named the first Macmillan Scholar at the Frank N. Macmillan Jr. Institute for Jungian Studies at the Jung Center in Houston. His role involves coordinating the Fay Lectures, editing their book series, and curating and creating content for their website, The Jung Page. His blog posts on David Bowie, the contributions of Tony Wolfe to analytical psychology, and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and Carl Jung are not to be missed. He has published over 100 journal articles and is the author of the book Bloiler, Jung, and the Creation of the Schizophrenias, published by Daimon Furlog in 2016. His work on Jungian neuroscience is included in the book The Professional Practice of Jungian Coaching, and his chapter on football in the United States appears in Analytical Psychology of Football. Both books were published by Routledge and edited by Episode 98 guests John and Nada O'Brien. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, December 15th, 2021 through the magic of Zoom. Dr. Escamilla, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. Great to be part of this series. I would like for you to tell us the story of how you got here. You trained to become a medical doctor, then a psychiatrist, and then you spent several years training as a geneticist specializing in psychiatric diseases, and then you went on to become a Jungian analyst. That's, that is correct. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's, um, I guess, you know, I, that's a very sequential way of explaining it. But I think along the way I, I had, um, become interested in Jung and even before medical school, 
Um, so I think what what happened to me, I, I had a, a kind of strange path. path. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was in college, I was very interested in the sciences and very interested in the humanities, uh, in particular literature and um, poetry and art. Um, and I did not care for psychology at all. I thought it was like this strange um, uh, field that that was, you know, uh, making statements about people and how they are. And uh, I felt it wasn't very scientific. Mm-hmm. And it also, it, it didn't allow for freedom of understanding people that you have for instance, in the arts. So I really just stayed away from everything to do with psychology. Um, but I was very interested in, in, in humanities and science. At the, in the last semester, I think, when I was in college, um, I took a course on film, and it was specifically film um, that represented dream states in film. Mm-hmm. going through a, a number of really interesting um, uh, cinematic experiences, um, including one of them was was a, a movie about Freud. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, an early, early film about Freud. But during that course, um, we, we had to read some theories about dreams. So one of the books we read was a compilation of essays on uh, dreams by um, by Carl Jung, and so that was my first exposure to Jung. And I thought, you know, his ideas were very interesting. And after college, I took a year off. I worked in a genetics lab, and um, I was trying to figure out if I wanted to go into um, medicine or into um, um, basic science. Mm-hmm. And I used to, I used to, every once in a while, go just walk through the library at the university. I was at the University of Texas working, and I would just sort of randomly pick books off the uh, shelf. And in that process, uh, one of the books I I, I, I looked into was Jung's um, Tavistock lectures. So these were these lectures he gave in, I believe it was in London, and I can't remember the exact year, but he kind of went through all his theories, and he was actually presenting to a, um, an audience of doctors. So I, I was really inspired by that book because it, it, it actually made a lot of sense to me, his mm-hmm. theories, and, and he goes over you know all his ideas, including personality types and what the unconscious is and um, and how um, how you could use that to help patients. And so I, I was very inspired by that and decided to go into medical school and, with the idea of becoming a psychiatrist and doing the kind of stuff Jung was doing. And I just knew him through that book as a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that's – so as I went through medical school um, – the interest in Jung kind of gradually fell by the wayside as I was studying anatomy and physiology and yeah. everything else you do as a medical student. But um, I, I still 
was very fascinated with psychiatry. And, and I think in my third year of medical school, um, uh, worked in um, a VA hospital. And the first patient I had was a young man with schizophrenia who just had his first psychotic break. And I was very moved uh, by how um, severe the illness was, you know, this sudden break with reality and hallucinations and delusions. And I, I had to talk to his parents about what his diagnosis was. And I realized I, we as a, as a scientific community really didn't understand what had happened. All we could do was put this label on it as schizophrenia and then give this prognosis, which was that he was going to have this the rest of his life. Right. And so at that point, I got very um, interested in, in trying to see if there's a way to understand what causes schizophrenia. And I knew from college that genetics was a, a way to start to understand diseases, all diseases, in, including schizophrenia. Um, so to make a long story short, to, you know, from there, I, I went on to my psychiatry residency with a focus on uh, learning genetics and using that to try to understand what caused schizophrenia. During residency, I had uh, probably two or three supervisors who were Jungians, and that was during the part of my training where I was doing psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. So my interest in Jung came back, but I, I kind of had to keep it on the side as I really dove into uh, the genetics work. Many years later, uh, after I had uh, started my career as a, a scientist and working in a medical school uh, doing genetic research, an opportunity came up for me to go to Zurich and uh, to go to some classes there. And when I went there, I discovered there was a, a long, a long distance training in Jungian analysis. So mm -hmm. I dove into that, um, you know, uh, at that point in time. And then I would go back and forth between Zurich studying Jung and then back to my work uh, doing research on schizophrenia and uh, just sort of held that uh, um, those two opposites, if, if you will, for a number of years and until hopefully I'm starting to integrate them at this point. So that's a long story of how I got to the training institute. But Jung was always there in the back of my mind, I think, since that last um, semester in college. The book you're referring to uh, that includes Jung's Tavistock lectures from 1935 is titled Analytical Psychology, Its Theory and Practice. And I will have a link to that in the show notes for this episode. So you said that it was reading Jung's work that had set you on the path to become a psychiatrist. And another thing you point out, which I love, is that a lot of people study Jung's later work on dream interpretation and symbols and the unconscious and individuation and myths, but they overlook his earlier career work 
on the topic of schizophrenia and the other psychotic illnesses. So, I mean, that's what the first four volumes of the collected works, right? Yeah, I believe so. And, and, you know, a lot of the late later works, you even like Mysterium Conjunctiosis, uh, you, you even see, uh, you know, he, he's writing about schizophrenia and his insights from schizophrenia there. So it's scattered throughout the books, but it's very intensively in those first four volumes. I would like for you to tell us about how Jung's early career work as a physician, as a medical doctor, you know, in that role as MD, Dr. Jung, how that influenced his what what word would you use formulation of analytical psychology of how analytical psychology was born from that uh so take us through what you discovered okay um so let me see if i can re- rephrase that so uh, how how did jung's um being a doctor, being a psychiatrist, influence his his thinking or his way of formulating. Well, I I think if you if you go to some of his own writings, he'll he'll talk about he'll talk about this interesting dream he had when he was I think he was in college. He was trying to figure out what he was going to do with his life, and he has a dream where he sees. Uh, some kind of biological creature like uh, in, a, in a pond. And he interprets that dream as, in, in a roundabout way, that leads him to, to medicine because what he interpreted from that is that he was interested in biology and, and in uh, the biological aspects of life. Um, you know, previously he had been, you know, very interested in philosophy as a as a young student. Mm-hmm. But there's a biological drive uh, or a, a desire to understand biology that comes from his own unconscious, and then he goes on to to medical school. Um, he's very, and as he goes through medical school, it's not clear what he's going to become like he you know he for all practical purposes could have become a surgeon or something he was just interested in understanding the body the biology um, of of life and how it is in human beings which is what doctors are focus on and we focus on when things get out of whack when people become ill but then he has sort of a uh, another uh, satori moment when he's in medical school where he reads a textbook of psychiatry and i i'm blanking on the 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 name right now but it's uh austrian uh psychiatrist and he there's a passage that that really moves him and basically the passage talks about understanding people uh, in a very complex way, understanding them in terms of not just their biology, but their their life experiences, their their thoughts, sort of a very comprehensive way of understanding a human being. And he's very excited by that. He talks about, you know, he knows at that moment he wants to be a psychiatrist. 
So, and, and I think what he's, what he's realizing in that moment is that he can start to combine uh, his interest in philosophy and um, uh, 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 yeah, mainly philosophy, his interest in philosophy with mm-hmm. uh, his, you know, the biology and the scientific stuff he was learning. Um, so he go he go, goes on, he becomes a psychiatrist. Um, he has an extremely intensive uh, introduction to that. I don't think people appreciate it. Uh, I certainly didn't until I read about it, but he, he went into psychiatry at this, uh, hospital called the Berg-Holsley in right, right outside of Zurich. And, uh, that's where he met his his mentor. The person who was the director was uh, a doctor named Eugen uh, Bloiler. But he like literally lived in that hospital for I think about four or five six years. <laughs> I mean, not only did yeah. he work every day and and every night, right? Because there were I think it was him Bloiler and maybe one other psychiatrist for the whole hospital. Uh, but he literally lived there, and Bloiler lived there. Um, now when Jung got married, he, you know, his wife, uh, thankfully got him to move outside of the psychiatric mm-hmm. hospital, but, uh, Bloiler, even with his family lived there. Mm-hmm. So, so it was an incredible immersion into the psych- psychiatry world. Mm-hmm. And I think he writes that his first year, he, I don't know how true it is, but it's like that he didn't even leave the hospital. He never left to go out to do anything in the outside world. So he was, you know, really immersed himself and he read all the texts. There there were some journals on psychiatry at that time. It was a relatively new field, but he immersed himself in everything that, you know, was known about psychiatry, at least through the German speaking world um, up to that date. Now, he is working from the beginning with um, patients who are really, um, you know, very disabled, right? Because he's in a psychiatric institute. Mm-hmm. He's not seeing, you know, people who are outpatient, you know, the, like we see people in outpatient practices these days or people who are functioning pretty well but are dealing with depression or anxiety. He's seeing very uh, severely affected individuals. And um, so he is embedded in that. Um, it's definitely a medical model that was taught to him uh, at the Berkholsley. So there, the basic understanding, which came from the German founders of that uh, university, was that there's a biological basis to these severe mental illnesses. And um, they're in the process of trying to understand what that biology is, but it's biological. And they, they, they have an understanding by that point that a lot of it has to do with what they call heredity, that, that it's something that's inherited because they notice that in particular families you would see uh, multiple cases. So they're trying to figure this out. Uh, Jung himself is doing research with brains. <laughs> Um, he's most, most of the German based inst- institutes at that time were doing research. And one of the first things they were looking at was, can you understand this by some abnormalities in the brain? So he's actually, you know, in there in the lab as well. Um, but then he, uh, and, and 
they also are combining that biological view with two other currents of thought. One is coming from France, and that's um, the work of um, Charcot and some of the the other people who are interested in this idea of an unconscious and unconscious processes. Um, and then later, uh, around the same time that Jung starts, uh, they also get interested in Freud's ideas because Freud is writing about the unconscious. And um, so all these different currents are coming together and Jung kind of abandons looking at brains because he comes across the, the idea of, of doing scientific experiments using things like the word association test. Um, but he's, he's very medical. He's, he's trying to understand his, what's driving him is what is causing these patients to have these severe um, uh, breaks with reality and to try to help them, help them get better. And he will um, approach his understanding of the psyche through trying to understand what causes what we now call schizophrenia. Um, and then throughout his life, he will, you know, always talk about, he's, he's a doctor, he's a psychiatrist. Um, he was very proud of that. And I think it, he was, you know, he was many other things, but I think he always had the uh, idea that he was doing his work to help people um, and that um, there was a biological as well as, you know, psychological experience, experience going on within us. Your book, Bloiler, Jung, and the Schizophrenias, uh, was published by Robert Hinshaw at Daimon Furlog in Einsiedeln, Switzerland. I actually got to visit him there in 2015. That's a and great place. yeah, and uh and in that book, you point out that Jung's core ideas for analytical psychology were directly inspired from the work that he did with psychotic patients. And I had never really thought of it that way. Um, there are a few chapters uh, in that book that really stood out to me. And I'd like to just mention them, them here briefly. One is Jung decides on a career as an alienist. What is an alienist? Yes, I, I I love that word, and yeah, me too. I, I, I've I've thought at times I I wanted to get a uh, you know a business card instead of psychiatrist, <laughs> but alienist. I love it. So, well, I mentioned a, a little earlier that when Jung was starting psychiatry, it was a very new field. Mm -hmm. it, it had not been around very long. Um, it had, you know, started to to be formed in really like the decades right before he started. Um, so initially, um, what they, you know, the initially patients with, you know, well, they weren't even patients, but people with severe uh, psychotic symptoms or you know breaks with reality, they were basically warehoused in in prisons. And then at some point, thanks to the Age of Enlightenment and ideas around that, um, doctors started to, to try to help these folks. But they had no 
you know, there was no such thing as psychiatry. So there's no way, no starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a doctor who worked with uh, patients with these severe illnesses was called an alienist. And where that comes from, my understanding of it is that they were working with people who were quote unquote alienated from society and alienated from themselves that, um, and so wow. an alienist was someone who could help someone who was in that state. And so that's what, <laughs> yeah. that's technically what, what Jung was becoming uh, at that time. And that, that evolved into the field of psychiatry. Another chapter that uh, stood out to me is Symbols of Transformation. Jung presents a revised psychology of the unconscious. So his his first book had, had came out around 1906, and it was called, um, in English, it would be something like the psychology of dementia precox, um, and dementia precox was the 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 a, a word for a severe uh, psychotic illness that had a sort of uh, like a dementia process that would affect people early in life. And that was the word that was coined by a, a German psychiatrist named um, Emil Kreppelin. Um, that later becomes, in, in the United States and really the rest of the world, uh, it gets replaced with the word schizophrenia. And, and that word came from uh, Bloiler. Um, when Bloiler was looking at the same type of patients, Kreplin was looking at but he came out with a very different conceptualization and uh, and then created his own. <laughs> Both of them had neologisms, right? Uh, neologisms are when you make up a word that hasn't been in existence before. And it's a common feature of schizophrenia. <laughs> but interestingly, both Kreppelin and Bloiler came up with neologisms, the words dementia precox, the, the word schizophrenia. At any rate, um, so Jung's first book was about those patients with dementia precox, what we would now consider schizophrenia, and understanding them from a psychological standpoint. Um, so the 1911-1912 book, Symbols of Transformation, what he's doing there, I think it has, um, yeah, I think there's other translations of it that have different titles, but that's probably the closest to the German. Um, what he's doing there is he is looking, he, he had done about four or five years of work with Freud by that point. And they had started this international association of psychoanalysis. And he, in the symbols of transformation, he's presenting a different way of thinking about the unconscious than Freud had. So he's kind of presenting an alternative um, uh, theory of the unconscious. In, in, in that earlier book um, on the psychology of dementia precox, he's using a lot of Freud's ideas uh, to understand the psychology of what's going on. But in nine, 1911, 1912, He's, he's really making a break from Freud and uh, coming up with some new ideas, some new concepts um, that, that Freud 
didn't have and didn't agree with. The other section of the book that stood out to me is titled Jung's Red Book, The Influence of the Psychoses. What role did Jung's experiences uh, in psychiatry at the Berkholsley play in his writing, you know, his his mm-hmm. writing in the black books that later became the red book? Yes, yes. I think it's I think they played an incredible role and and it's fascinating to me. I know I've had uh, had at least one prominent uh, Jungian scholar that disagrees with me on this, but I I don't see how how you can ignore it. Um, The, when he was working with these, um, his patients in the Berkholsley. So um, there's, there's a couple of cases that that stand out. Um, w- one of them is in, in that book, The Psychology of Dementia Precox, he goes into great, great detail about one particular case. And it's a woman um, there that has, I guess what we, we would call a diagnosis of schizophrenia now. Um, but, um, you know, what he learned from Bloiler who, who really was his main mentor, more so than Freud. What he learned from Bloiler was when you had someone with schizophrenia, um, it might seem like everything they're saying makes no sense, unintelligible, both their verbal behaviors and their physical behaviors. Mm-hmm. But if you really, really uh, work with them, talk to them, stick with it, you can start to understand what's going on underneath the surface from a psychological perspective. So, and, and Jung, when, when Freud goes to visit Jung in, at the Berkholsley, um, he wants to meet this woman that Jung had written so much about. Uh, and after Freud meets the woman, he's like, how can you spend so much time with a person like that? Because <laughs> she was, you know, really out of it and really psychotic and Freud, didn't have experience of working with patients like that. So that shows you how, how much, you know, Jung um, was able to relate to and put himself in the frame of mind of his patients. And he learned that from Bloiler because that was Bloiler's whole, whole idea. If right, you live right. and work with these folks, you'll start to, you'll start to understand them. So in that process, um, uh, I guess around 1909, uh, around that time, both Jung and Freud start getting into uh, looking at the idea of complexes, which are the you know psychological complexes, and they're looking at how they manifest themselves in culture, um, in, in like in mythologies, for instance. And at some point, Jung. Jung has a very difficult time around 1911, 1912. He leaves the Berkholsley, and we're not sure exactly why. He says it was just that he couldn't do – the work had become so difficult at that hospital, the day-to-day work of being a doctor there, mm-hmm. that he couldn't write and do his other things. But we also know there were some scandals going on. Um, that might have forced him out, but he leaves the Berkholsley, and he had, you know, up till then, his 
his path had been to be a university uh, professor, you know, in the medical school there. But he leaves that um, to go into, I guess, what we would call private practice. And he also publishes this book, The Symbols of Transformation, where he breaks from Freud. And uh, Freud is um, pretty upset about it and kind of, you know, eventually breaks with him. So he's lost all his moorings. And he's also, as I mentioned, he would really get into what is going on in his patients' minds. So he, around that time, he has this, this sudden, you could say, a depression coming on, maybe a midlife crisis, because uh, he's sort of lost his moorings of his, his career and his main professional uh, connections. But he is also very fascinated with the rich inner world of his patients. And he, he has this moment where he's, he basically says his patients have a myth or they have myths that they live by and that motivate them. And he doesn't have his own myth. Um, so it's really a poignant. I, I think it's also, you could maybe find it in memories, dreams, and reflections. Um, but it's poignant because he's here he is, the doctor who's been helping these patients with disorders. And he suddenly has this shift where they have a richer inner world um, and a more meaningful inner world mm -hmm. than he does. And he starts to um, um, look for his own myth. And that's how the Red Book starts. So it came, you know, really did come from, in my view, from his exposure to the patients, realizing that there was something in their inner world that was very powerful and profound and that the outer world, the scientific world, medical world that he was in um, didn't have that same um, meaning. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think that's, you know, there's another book he reads around that time um, by a, a, a patient named uh, Schraber, Daniel Schraber. And, um, Schraper is this this person who publishes a book about you know he's deeply embedded in his own psychoses but he just puts it all out there and again um, Jung was very influenced and excited by the depth of this person's thought and his ideas and by comparison Freud Freud uh, thought thought the guy was just nuts and and um, and that was another break between the two of them, I think, uh, between Jung and Freud. I'd like to circle back to something you mentioned about Freud. Freud was not a psychiatrist. He was a neurologist. So he did not have the exposure that Jung had to these mental states. So Correct. they really were not coming from the same place. And I like also how much you point out in your book that it was Bloiler who was Jung's real mentor uh, and not Freud. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's, it's completely obscured, but, you know, historically, but uh, that it's very much the case. Um, uh so Bloiler, let's see, Bloiler, 
I've already mentioned how, you know, his approach to working with patients, you know, actually living in the hospitals there and, and, uh, you know, he would eat meals with patients and, and, um, so, um, you know what that reminds me of? I really want to mention this. Um, okay. I used to watch this television show and I, w- I was going to bring this up in a little bit when we talk about uh, your chapter on neuroscience in Jung. I mm-hmm. used to watch this television show called Northern Exposure. I've, I've heard of it. Yeah, I, I've seen an episode or two. Some episodes. Yeah, there were six yep. seasons. It aired in the 1990s on CBS. Mm-hmm. And it was a doctor up in Alaska, right? Yes. Working in Alaska. Yes. And one of the characters wanted to become or felt that he was called to become a shaman. And so when Mm -hmm. he was training to become a shaman, what the shaman that he was studying under did was, was show him how in order to help someone or heal someone, you need to live with them for a few days. And that always stood out to me because isn't that true? You don't really know someone until you live with them and you watch mm-hmm. all of their their routines and just how they structure their day and their night and everything. Yeah. It just yeah. reminds me of that. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd like to cover... Um, the neuroscience and the genetics aspect. So maybe we should. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm belaboring. Yeah, I could uh, wrap. The, I could the, the point on Bloiler. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I'll do a couple of points on on Bloiler. Yeah. So so we've seen how you know how his method and um, you know of working with patients and how that influenced Jung. Um, and you know the other thing to just keep in mind is that both of them were working with patients with psychosis, psychotic. Uh, disorders, and that's mm-hmm. something Freud didn't have any contact with uh, in his own practice as a neurologist. Um, but uh, Bloiler was really interested in all these different uh, ways of understanding his patients, and I mentioned that he at the Berkholsley they they combined the German biological approach with the French ideas about an unconscious, and then with with uh, with Freud's ideas. Um, and so Bloiler has a whole understanding of the unconscious and how the unconscious works. And it's built on the idea of complexes and he puts that together with Jung. So the two of them are, are working together to understand the unconscious from a scientific perspective. And, and they, you know, they wrote a number of articles. There's a couple of books, uh, where there's chapters by Bloiler and and by Jung. Um, so they really developed a whole way of understanding the unconscious, which is separate from Freud. It doesn't involve the drive theories or, you know, um, um, you know, the, the two main, like the Oedipal complex, for instance, Freud puts everything in that one complex. Bloiler and Jung look at and each person is having many, many different complexes, and they really understand that people are a composite of these uh, formative life experiences and the associations from them. And you know, they they weren't able to study the brain directly, but they're really understanding the brain psychologically as a number of complexes, a number of uh, 
that that we are our memories and the associations of those memories and those influence us. So Jung, Jung really learned from Bloiler and um, how to understand these very difficult psychotic states, but they also are very interested in, you know, everyday psychology. Um, what, what, what makes everyone tick, you know, not just people with illnesses. So um, it's really interesting, you know, to, no one reads the, the, like Bloiler wrote a really interesting book around 1906 that came out the same time Jung's first book did. And uh, it, it talks about, you know, day-to-day life and how the unconscious is um, active and what are the components of the unconscious. And um, yeah, so Bloiler was, was really, really important uh, mentor. And there's very late writings of Jung where he'll talk about his mentor um, and his mentor, he'll say, was, was Bloiler. So. His mentor was Bloiler. Yeah. So again, the book is titled Bloiler, Jung, and the Schizophrenias. Uh, it was published in 2016, and there will be a link to that in the show notes for this episode. And now I would like to move on to talk a little bit about neuroscience. And I was very excited preparing for this episode because my background is in neuroscience. I studied it in college, and then I worked in the field Uh, in a hospital setting, in a research hospital. So I was really excited to read your work linking neuroscience and Jung. And I unfortunately have been kicking myself for the past few weeks (laughs) for deciding to leave that field because I thought it was necessary. Um, So in the book, The Professional Practice of Jungian Coaching, which was edited by John and Nada O'Brien, who were my guests in the previous episode, episode 98, your chapter titled Neuroscience and Jung uh, was published. In it, you say that modern neuroscience, present day neuroscience, is just now catching up to Jung's ideas. Yes, um, but I... I should um, explain that a little bit. The um, the so and at the time when Jung was coming up with his theories, we we just had the very very rudimentary ways of understanding the brain, and it was really just looking at the brain, you know, physically. Mm-hmm. We didn't have imaging. Um, we really didn't have EEGs either, which is a way to measure like the, the neural activity in the brain. And so he was using these things like um, uh, he was measuring electrical activity, but measuring it from, I think from the hands uh, and things like that. So when I say that, you know, neuroscience is catching up to Jung's ideas, what, what I mean by that, is that the we can now start to test out Jung's ideas using neuroscience tools. Um, the The other thing uh, that I mean by that is that as people, as neuroscientists, are starting to understand the brain and how that how that interacts with with our psychological experience. They are coming up with concepts that are 
you know, for all practical purposes, the it, it maps onto Jung's idea of complexes, and uh, also, you know, um, different um, thought processes and. In Symbols of Transformation, one of the big things Jung is writing about is that there's um, there's two ways of thinking. There's a sort of rational, logical way of thinking, and then there's a more symbolic, poetic, artistic way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Two different uh, ways that the brain processes uh, information. And now with neuroscience, we can we, we actually see that there are different states, different circuits that are involved when a person's uh, doing an activity versus not doing an activity, when they're in a dream state. Um, so, so there's an understanding now that the brain is not uh, just, you know, a logical apparatus, uh, you know, like just a computer um, doing logical work but that there are these different uh, modalities of thought and they're going on for all practical purposes simultaneously in, in our brain. And that's something that Jung, you know, was, was talking about. He was talking about complexes and how our personalities formed by the complexes and, and neuroscience is, is starting to see these things. Now, it's not using any of the Jungian terminology. Mm-hmm. So it's come about, about it, through a different path, um, and in that, in that um, chapter, I talk about how I think I talk about there's different. You know, um, psychologists use different words. They don't even like the word unconscious. You know, current current psychologist and you know doing experimental psychology. You won't you you won't even it's you won't just, find that word. <laughs> it's such a pet, big pet peeve of mine. So why is that? <laughs> I mean, how can you do anything without taking into consideration the unconscious? Just right. Well, they do. They do take they take it into consideration, but they just don't like that word, and they don't like why? what it represents. I think it's. Uh, I think it's just a reaction to. This is a cultural thing that happened, mm-hmm. um, it, it, you know, over the last century. But in, in, and I can talk about it more from the medical world. But I think it also was hap- probably happening some in the psychology world. Um, but and and a lot of neuroscience comes from the medical world, right? So, in in the medical world, you know, the initial ways of of understanding the mind and the brain were um, very focused on the logical side of the brain, logical side of thinking. And, you know, the word association experiment, for instance, was developed to try to understand how, how we make associations in the brain. Um, And they weren't, there was no idea of an unconscious really. So, then you have these these radical thinkers, Jung and Freud, talking about this thing called the unconscious. And um, there's, I think, there's just a reaction in medicine uh, against that because, um, you know, for the the medical model is very interested in logic, and it's you know logically defining this is a disease and this isn't, this is the treatment, this isn't. 
and it really has trouble with um, understanding the complexity of, of, of psychology and the idea of uh, spectrums from illness to health. The medical model doesn't like that. So the unconscious sort of was, it, it, it got into uh, American medicine when a number of analysts uh, emigrated to, to the States after World War II. And there were a lot of people, uh, a lot of, there was a lot of war trauma and, you know, P, what we would now call PTSD. And at that point, there was a, there was a big swing in academia in, in the medical schools to have people with this Freudian based approach um, uh, treating patients. But pe- people in, there was a counter push to that started with, uh, you know, Aaron Beck, who recently passed away, but, you know, developing the cognitive behavioral approaches to therapy. There was a frustration with the the, the uh, Freudian approach. And the Freudian approach is based on the unconscious, right? But in my view, a very limited uh, way of looking at the unconscious. So the the... The, the people in, in, the, in the medical schools or the psychology schools um, who didn't like that sort of vagueness, the long extended analysis, not, not, it wasn't very medically oriented. Um, there was that swing back to CBT and um, understanding brain functioning, um, not using these these to them almost like mystical or messy terms like the unconscious. So they'll talk about uh, implicit memory. So that's like a word uh, that is, is, you know, repl- they, they break the, what we consider the unconscious as, as Jungians, they break it into the components of what, what does that mean? So there's declarative memory and then there's implicit memory. Declarative is something you can, you know, recall and you can put into words. Implicit is something that you you can't recall, and and uh, memory that's maybe not based on words. So they they just I think they wanted a more scientific way of talking about the same phenomenon that we talk about when we use the word unconscious, and. To, to give them some credit, I think there's a lot to be said for that because um, when we talk about the unconscious as unions, it, it can be pretty vague. It can get vague. And, and if you're trying to understand these things scientifically, which I think there's a value to doing that, you need to define the terms better. And so I think that's why there's that split right now. Um, and then the unions just—they never really got into the the medical schools. Uh, you know, it was the Freudians who, you know, became the department chairs and things like that. And then they, you know, so all the reaction to, um, let's say, you know, analytic psychology, analytic psychology just got thrown in there with the Freudian views. And they were all just sort of rejected over the last 30 or 40 years Mm -hmm. um, in in academia. Do you see that changing now? Well, I wish I could be more optimistic, but I I don't see it unless 
it's going to take a lot of, you know, it's going to take individuals getting in there and really uh, pushing it. Um, I, no, I think unions are still, you know, very scarce in, in the, in academia. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's just an unfortunate uh, situation that um, the, as, as the union movement or however you want to call it, as it developed, um, you know, um, it was really focused on union institutes, which were freestanding and outside of the university. And so, um, you know, the few unions that are in the university setting are, you know, far and few between. I, I can only think of a handful. I can think of some that are you know, have kind of adjunct appointments. Um, so they're able to teach and, and uh, you know, hopefully get some of, of the Jungian thoughts in there, but it's... Um, well, what about yeah. your ongoing project in Texas where you <laughs> yeah. are teaching Jungian ideas to yeah. students? Tell yeah. us about that. Yeah, yeah. so I guess... In, yeah, I can definitely talk about that. So it is, you know, it has been a, a bit of a struggle and some sometimes things work out well. Um, so there's some, um, some synchronicity uh, and some positive experiences, serendipity <laughs> that have uh, helped, helped me to be able to do that. But so I think um, for me, one thing that helped um, was when I was at um, the Health Science Center in San Antonio, was running my genetics, uh, psychiatry genetics research lab. There was a uh, a psychiatrist. Uh, her name was Mary Ware. Um, she was a psychiatrist who had gone through training in San Antonio, and had been very influenced by. Um, by Jung, because there was a professor there at the time in the psychiatry department who was a Jungian. Um, and when Mary Ware passed away in her will, she left uh, some money for the school to create a position in psychiatry for someone to teach Jung. So I was really lucky at that point because that opportunity came up for our department and the department chair I had at the time, even though he didn't know I was interested in Jung, but he connected me up with that. And he said, well, Mike, you're interested in genetics. And, you know, I seem to recall Jung had this idea of, you know, the personality types that those were inborn and um, maybe you could do something in this area. And I just jumped at it. Um, so I was able to start to study Jung and, and actually trained to become an analyst while I was in academia. And so, and I had this great opportunity to teach Jung in that particular medical school. So that's, you know, all good luck, right? I mean, it just came out of the blue, really. Um, um, although I had, I had had that predecessor in that school of, um, gosh, I, I'm blanking on his name now, but there were, there was a um was it charles bowden well charles bowden was my my chair but he's he was very biological and, and uh but there before him there was um uh i'll try to look it up afterwards okay. uh, and get the name to you but there was a 
psychiatrist there who was a Jungian. He'd studied with, I think he actually, you know, trained a bit with Jung himself. Um, but so he had done some teaching um, to medical students and psychiatry residents about Jung. And there's actually a book called uh, Practical Jung that he wrote, um, which is based on how he taught Jung to medical students and residents. So that's a really good resource. It's also published by Daimon Verlag. Um, so there was a, you know, a little, there, that was just an interesting roundabout story that got, that got Jung into that school. Um, and so then I was able to start, you know, having uh, annual lectures and inviting speakers uh, to teach about Jung. Um, and um, so from there, then, then I, I um, was able to run this neuroscience institute in El Paso. I moved on to do that work. And uh, as the director, I had some leeway of, of being able to decide some of the research we were doing. So I was able to, um, to fund through that a study looking at uh, using neuroscience and F uh, functional magnetic re resonance imaging mm -hmm. to look at uh, what's going on in the brain when complexes are generated. So what, so, is, what is going on in the brain when complexes <laughs> are generated? Tell yeah. us briefly, if you would. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's it's fascinating. So, when I first started this, I was I was working with a uh, 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 a neurosurgeon named Philip Bechtel, and he he was his question was, can we see complexes in the brain? Uh, is is there any evidence at all that the brain reacts differently when complexes are triggered? So we're kind of going into it with a blank slate. Like, let's just let's test this hypothesis uh, from the start. And so what we did find, and it's a very complicated way we had to do it using the word association test and figuring out certain words that trigger complexes in, in certain people and, uh, and then words that are neutral. And we, we looked at the brain and how does the brain respond? And then we had to subtract the differences between when it's reacting to a neutral word versus a complex word. But the upshot of it was we found two brain circuits that get really activated when a complex is triggered. And, and one of the circuits, and uh, we wrote a paper about this. It's published in the Journal of Analytic Psychology. But one of the circuits is we call it like the memory body circuit. So it's parts of the brain that are involved in memories uh, and where memories are encoded. And then it goes directly <clears throat> to the motor cortex. So the parts of the brain that uh, both send um, messages to the body and receive messages from the body. So you could think of this as uh, a nonverbal response to a complex that's in the body, if you will. The second uh, circuit that gets activated is much more complex. So it doesn't go through that, you know, to the motor complex. It goes from the part of the brain that encodes memories. It, it also goes to the limbic, some of the deeper limbic structures where emotion is generated. 
and then also to parts of the brain where um, meaning and uh, where meaning is ascribed, and also uh, where sim- symbols and words are. So, so what do you call that one? Uh, <laughs> many words. We call call that. Uh, I, I guess memory, language, meaning circuit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so now complexes can probably be stimulated by things other than words, right? So mm-hmm. this might have to do with the fact that we were doing the word association test okay. to trigger the complexes. But certainly when a complex is triggered by a word, it it activates a part of the brain that wants to associate that in language and come up with meanings. Um, and it it's like, you can think of it as a survival mechanism. Think of it as, um, you know, when we've had really deep experiences that affected us in a very negative or very positive way, the brain wants to remember that because it's useful um, let's just say something bad happened to you, something traumatic. The brain wants to remember that. So if you're in any situation that is, has anything to do with that, it triggers you that you're in a, mm-hmm. a, you know, a difficult situation. And so it can, you know, so that first circuit, it triggers you just, it just goes to the body. It just alerts right. you that something's going on, be ready to move, be ready to, run, flee, whatever. But the second path is it starts to try to figure out the memory and the words associated with it. And then the thoughts and the, you know, the associations uh, that are in the brain. And uh, so it's a, it's another survival mechanism, if you will, to uh, use your, your, um, the part of your brain that uses language to try to figure figure out why why you're feeling the way you're feeling so so i think that's kind of what's going on um it's pretty fascinating it's pretty dramatic too besides the fmri we were able to do some studies using uh eegs Mm -hmm. and again there's just a lot of activation in especially the frontal cortex Mm -hmm. really gets uh really gets worked up that's the part of the brain that initiates movements and uh, initiates activities and kind of tells, tells it's like the command structure in the brain mm-hmm. tells you what to do. And, you know, um, so that part gets really activated. And then also the temporal uh, cortex where our thoughts and words and emotions can be. You said that you, when you were doing these studies, these experiments, uh, you had to issue trigger words to mm-hmm. your subjects, but obviously, or maybe not obvious to some people, not the same words could be used on everybody. It depended Correct. on someone's complexes. Absolutely, so, and that goes back, and that goes back to to Bloiler, right? He, the way he understood human beings was that each person has a large number of complexes that are unique to them. They're unique to their history and their experience. So that's why you can't treat a person, you can't help a person as a psychiatrist or therapist without knowing the very unique story of the person and the complexes that 
you know, complete them. So absolutely. So we used the word association test before we did the imaging. We did the word association test. We used a a way we do it in Zurich. It's where you give them a, a hundred words. You just read the words and they respond with the first thing that comes to their mind. And uh, you measure uh, the reactions to each word. And so there are certain words that they just answer something back very quickly. And then there are other words where they, you know, they get stuck. They don't, you know, there's a time delay or they have, you know, they flinch or you can see a body movement. So we would call those the complex indicators. So for each person, they would have a list of 100 words, and we would figure out for each person, you know, uh, five words that triggered complexes. And we didn't go into the details of it, like why these words might have done it. But we knew from the from those experiments, we knew which words triggered complexes in, in one in each person. So you're completely right. It has to. The complexes are you know specific to the the individuals. We haven't really spoken much about your research as a geneticist. Would you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing in that area? Sure, sure. That's a whole another fascinating area of science right now. So, um, so the two main um, disorders I've studied or illnesses, how, however you want to call it, uh, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Um, and, and the reason I studied those is when you look at different psychiatric di- uh, diagnoses, those two have a very strong genetic component. Um, and there's, a, there's different ways to, to figure that out. You know, there's twin studies, adoption studies, and then there's more sophisticated ways where you can look at family structures and you can see for any illness how much of it is genetic versus environmental. So schizophrenia and bipolar have a, a, a very strong genetic uh, component. This was realized by, you know, by Bloiler and, and uh, Kreplin way back 100 years ago, and they were completely right. Um, so the main risk for schizophrenia is if you have a family history of it. Uh, same thing for bipolar. Other things in the environment are like minuscule in terms of, you know, anything we have identified that can contribute to those. So we know it's genetic. So um, myself and many other scientists around the world for the last 20 years or so, maybe 30 years, have been trying to find the genes that are involved in schizophrenia or bipolar. This is the same way, for instance, with Huntington's disease or cystic fibrosis. We used the medical field used genetics and this this process called gene mapping, where you study families where there's multiple cases, and you you look at the DNA and you eventually you can find the genes that cause the illness. Something like cystic fibrosis, it turns out it's one gene. Um, and there's different mutations or variations in that gene that lead to the, the illness. Schizophrenia and, and bipolar, <clears throat> it turns out, are what we call complex genetic disorders, where there are many, many different genes that contribute 
uh, to the risk. Um, it's not just one gene. So it, it was a, you know, over the last 20 years, it, it's been a lot of learning that's happened in my own lab and then in other people's research. Um, you know, we first realized there wasn't just one gene causing these. And then we had to come up with different techniques of how do we find these genes? Because the, the family-based approaches that worked for Huntington's uh, or cystic fibrosis don't work so well when it's complex genetics. So over the last, I'd say 10 years, the field was finally able to make some breakthroughs by uh, studying really large numbers of subjects with schizophrenia and then control subjects. So people without, mm -hmm. and when I say large samples, I'm talking like, you know, tens of thousands oh, wow. of cases okay. of controls. So it's, it's a really massive endeavor to do that, but it's borne a lot of fruit. So, so in, in my own lab, I've, you know, discovered, you know, several genes that are associated with schizophrenia and bipolar, but at, at the world level, I think we're probably over a hundred genes now that we've been able to identify that are part of the, the biology of schizophrenia. Once this has been discovered and, and confirmed, what then can be done about it? Good question. <laughs> That's, yeah. you know, from the beginning, I think the hope, well, there were lots of different things we thought we would be able to do once we get there and understand the genes. And we're in the process of all of them. So one of them is if once you know which gene variants contribute to these illnesses, you can you can um, you can test someone um, before they've developed any illness, and you can you can better uh, you can better identify who's at risk for the disorder. And so we use these complicated equations, but it's called a polygenetic risk score. Mm -hmm. So it's looking at all these, basically for each person, how many of these variants that put you at risk for schizophrenia do you have? And so you can, you could classify, you know, you, theoretically you could do this with children. You could say this child's at very high risk. This child's at very low risk. Once you have that, you can actually start to do some studies. If you know who the high-risk kids are, you can do studies to see if, if are there in, any interventions you can do to prevent schizophrenia. Because um, we know there's an environmental factor that in, in conjunction with the genetic uh, risk, that's what causes the disease. So, for instance, I've developed some studies where we identify kids that are high risk for bipolar or schizophrenia and we teach, we, we have uh, materials to teach them at a really young age about, uh, about mental illness mm -hmm. it, um, and what are the first signs of it. Um, we work with their parents because uh, it's, it's, it's known that if you can get someone in treatment very early when they first have their first mania or psychosis, their outcome is going to be much, much better. Okay. Uh, in reality, like with bipolar disorder in our studies, we found that it's an average of five to six years between the first episode 
and the first time they get diagnosed. So you can see, and, and by, and, and both of these illnesses start like in the teenage years or early twenties. So you can imagine if someone has, let's say they have psychosis that starts at 19, if it's untreated, it's going to mess up, you know, their college, Mm -hmm. uh, their, their work experiences, et cetera. And if you aggressively, uh, work with them at this early stage, you can, you can actually avoid a lot of the, uh, the downside of the illness. So, so that's one thing. The, the other is, as I mentioned, there's like a lot of genes involved. We haven't, haven't gotten too far along this line, but I think we will eventually, um, from one person to another with schizophrenia, what's causing their schizophrenia is a different, can be different clusters or different genes and based on which genes are involved, um, we could use medications that are more tailored for that particular pathway. So, uh, or not use medications. So, so for instance, out of the, uh, out of those hundred or so genes that cause schizophrenia, some of them do involve pathways with the dopamine system, which can be treated with antipsychotics that block dopamine. But a lot of the, the, the genes are involved in neural for, formation. So, you know, if you, if you treat that, that, that person with a dopamine blocker, you're mainly just giving them side effects and not really treating the cause of the illness. So there's the hope, I think, that you know, using the, this genetic information, we can tailor the treatments better. Uh, and we can, you know, let's say one person, the, the, the pathway that's affecting them has to do with how they process information. We can do, we can use, uh, you know, psychological tools to, to kind of help them process information better. And another person, it might be their dopamine systems out of whack. And we, we need to, you know, um, address that with a medication that blocks dopamine. So that's how it can help. Now, some people jump to conclusions like, oh, we're, you know, we could just eliminate the disorders, <laughs> get rid of the mutations or the polymorphisms that cause this risk. But I, I'm really adamantly against that because I think these are um, all of these, these variations that in a particular person can add up to schizophrenia. In the, in the general population, they're floating around and they're in a lot of us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we, we actually know now through some interesting studies that creativity, the same genes that contribute to schizophrenia also contribute to creativity. Um, and so you don't want to get rid of them in the population because they have, they have a function and they, they have a positive side to them. Um, but again, one particular individual can can get ill because of you know whatever combination of those are that they're carrying, plus something in the environment that that uh, brought out the illness. So yeah, so better diagnosis, better um, hopefully being able to prevent the illness um, in those who are at, at risk. Mm -hmm. And uh, wouldn't it be great if, you know, we could identify someone at risk and we could kind of give them advice to let them be creative 
rather mm -hmm. than going into a psychosis. Mm -hmm. What about Jung's view that schizophrenia uh, was caused by a lowering of mental functioning yeah. that allowed the unconscious uh, material from the unconscious to more easily manifest? So, yeah, how... I think he's right. I think mm -hmm. it makes sense. So, yeah, he. Um, how could you prevent something like that in someone? Yeah, yeah. Well, as I mentioned, there's lots of different pathways to the ultimate disease of, of schizophrenia. So there, there are certain people that most likely the genetic basis of their, their form of schizophrenia is you know has to do with neural connections um, and how, how the, the brain wired. As, as it was growing. Um, so in that case, um, you, you can get these things where affect emo or emotions and cognitions, so thoughts and co uh, feelings aren't integrated very well in the brain. Um, and that can lead to the psychological experience of um, the ego isn't very strong to use a you know psychological word right so the ego gets overpowered because it's it's not strong enough to navigate this very confusing information that's coming in so if if you think of us as like you know we're a, a number of complexes and one of our complexes is the ego um, which you know involves that frontal cortex if that gets weak which it can, it can be weakened by a number of things, by neural connections, by brain damage, you know, uh, other, you know, uh, certain uh, infections, right, can also cause problems there. So once that gets damaged, the e if you think about it psychologically, the ego is, is weaker. So, yeah, I, you can still treat, but you can treat, but the way to treat, and what Jung said, and some later uh, Jungians who have worked with schizophrenic patients, what they say is you try to help integrate emotion and cognition. So you, you go to that core problem that's leading to the ego being overwhelmed. The ego is overwhelmed because it, it doesn't know how to process the information. So in the therapy, you help, you help put feelings to the thoughts. You help to identify the complexes. So it's not just a confusing uh, experience. You tie it to their their life story, and that's the way you help you help them uh, compensate. And Jung Jung will write in his text. He'll say <clears throat> every patient uh, he tries to um, can't remember how he says it, but he tries to teach them some psychology, meaning to teach them a little bit about their complexes and what they are and. Um, and to, and, and so that's, that's how you can go about, uh, doing that. But I think it's true. I mean, I, I do think the, the ego, you know, and this is what neuroscientists are starting to put together from the brain perspective, what the ego means. Right. But, uh, so, so that's one of the splits between neuroscience and psychology, or at least Jungian psychology is that um, 
we it's hard to define the ego biologically but but it does exist psychologically and there's a biology to it and there's a biology to it and then i just want to add this about schizophrenia in jung uh, that he correlated introversion with schizophrenia and that it might be an extreme version of introversion. Right. And so right. let's talk about the personality types. I know we're we're on an hour and 23 minutes here, but there's just too much material to cover. So as Jimmy Church would say, we're going into overtime here, folks. That's okay, <laughs> so um, personality types and... DNA. Okay. So um, there's a lot of theories on personality. Um, probably the one we're all familiar with as Jungians is his idea of different personality types. Um, introverted, extroverted, uh, and then a strong, stronger, weak sensation function, feeling function, uh, thinking function, and um, sensation right or anyway <laughs> um so so there's jung jung had his theory of different personality types um and really what his theory was about was different functions of personality that can be stronger or weaker in, in a person there's other theories of personality out there like this thing called the five factor scale uh which um it uses introversion, extroversion as one of its uh, uh, one of its factors in personality. But basically, genetics. What we've now been able to show is that there are that these are under genetic control. There's some environmental mm -hmm. um, uh, part of it, but they're also uh, under genetics. So it's true that you know. A, a child is born with its genetic profile, which is going to largely play a role in their personality, what, what type of personality they have. And we've been able to now start to map and identify, um, not quite at the gene level, but we've identified regions of DNA that contain, you know, the, the genes that influence personality, and including person and extrovert. So if anything's genetic, it's coming from the genes, from the DNA. Um, and so if you know that personality, you know, a large component of it is genetic, that means that there are specific genes in our DNA that um, within a gene, there's always variation in the human species. And so, but a specific gene, if it has, it there's only a certain number of genes that influence personality out of the 30,000 genes, right? Uh, just like schizophrenia, there's only a certain number of genes that influence schizophrenia. So we can, just like with finding genes for disease, we can find genes for traits and personality is a trait. Um, and so, so did, did Jung see that? I mean, obviously that was not, there was no genetic research during Jung's time, right? So uh, he didn't yep. have access to that data, but he thought Correct. that we were born with a blueprint. Yeah, yeah. So he he was right. You know, he he developed the the personality theory because he couldn't understand there were 
between himself and Freud and um, one of the other early analysts, they they had such different ways of viewing the world that, yeah, Adler. that he, he wanted Adler, right? He wanted to understand how can we have such different <laughs> fixed right. ways of sure. experience. So that's what drove him to come up with the you know his his psychology of of personality. Um, but yeah, he was yeah he thought these were inborn, right? There were introverts, there were extroverts to talk about that particular one, and he did. He did think that um, people with schizophrenia were very highly introverted, um, and that that those two things went together. So the you know people who are interested in what's going on in their inner world as opposed to the outer world uh, that that was for Jung uh, an introvert, and um, and he thought that's what was going on in. Uh, schizophrenia. Now, Bloiler, he used the word autism to describe that same phenomenon. So he actually invented the word autism too, but not just schizophrenia. But he said that people with schizophrenia had, uh, they, they had an, what he called autism. It's not the way we use autism now, but, um, but that they were, you know, in their inner world, focused on the inner world. So he used a different word, right? Than Jung used introversion, and then uh, and then uh, it got even more uh, complicated when Freud got it. You know, tried to understand schizophrenia, and he he explained it as autoeroticism. <laughs> the the psychological uh, apparatus hadn't uh, gone beyond the very infantile stage of what he called autoeroticism. So they all use different terms to explain what they were observing that a lot of patients with schizophrenia seem pretty withdrawn, uh, not interacting as much with the outer world and more interested in the inner world. Um, and that has, it has, Jung was partly right, partly not right. Um, when, when, we did a study, I haven't published it yet, but we did a study looking at uh, introversion and uh, we, we looked at people with bipolar disorder, people who had psychosis and people who didn't have psychosis. And we did ultimately find that um, the ones with psychosis overall were more introverted. Um, and um, so there is something to that, that psychosis and introversion go together. But there were, there were um, people with psychosis that were extroverted and there were people without psychosis who were introverted. So it's not just a one-to-one -one designation, but in general, you could say that introversion and psychosis, um, there's an association there. An association. And yeah. then one last thing on this subject, uh, in your chapter on neuroscience in Jung, you point out that Jung saw DNA as the natural biological vehicle in which archetypes would need to be transmitted as DNA codes for all of our brain and body structures and is inherited from our ancestors. Yes. So, so, there is an interesting 
uh, interview, film interview with Jung. I think it's called the Houston Interviews uh, late in his career. Um, and you can, if you go through there, you can find a little section where he actually mentions DNA because DNA had, you know, become a hot topic around 1959, 1960. Yeah, I'm just going to jump in here. Yeah, I did find that. Uh, it oh, good. The Houston Films, these transcript of the Houston Films is in the book C.G. Jung Speaking, and I will provide a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, he he talks in there, he actually uses the word DNA, and he, he's talking about archetypes, I believe, um, which uh, that's a whole other topic of archetypes, but he's saying the archetypes are in the DNA. And that actually, that has to, remember Jung was a biologist, right? That mm-hmm. if you go back to that first dream that got him into med school, he was interested in biology. So for him, archetypes aren't just free floating out there in the world. They are embedded in our, our biology and the way that um, the way that the brain is going to react to the environment um, that's coded in our genes. So the, the whole interplay of how we experience the world, um, both in terms of our neurology, but our psychology is embedded in that DNA. And what he would say is that we experience reality in a certain number of uh, common ways that are common across all humans and all cultures. And that's what archetypes are. It's, it's, it's embedded ways of experiencing um, the world. Um, so it's, it's not just, you know, uh, uh, how should I say? It's, it's, it's not just uh, pictures or images, although you can, you can use them to flesh out an archetype, but they're, biological ways that we experience where we're all you know we have a built-in uh way of experiencing a mother uh you know we all have a mother complex but the mother complex is built on the mother archetype that's in our dna it's you could think of it as the 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 biological pattern of how we're going to experience uh people in our lives and that's just built into the human race. I'd like for you to tell us about being the Macmillan Scholar. So that role belonged to Dr. David Rosen, who was a guest on this podcast a few months ago. And when he was the, it wasn't called the Macmillan Scholar at the time, but it's called the Macmillan Scholar now. Uh, with the formation of the Macmillan Institute for Jungian Studies, which is now at the Jung Center in Houston. It's just called the Jung Center. It is in Houston, Texas. And so I was wondering uh, if you would please tell us about your role and and what's going on with that today and how it's uh, it's different from when Dr. Rosen held the position. Yeah. Yeah, D- David Rosen is one of my mentors, and and I really learned a lot from him. We we connected initially because he was the the Macmillan Scholar at Texas A and M, where he was teaching Jung in in that university and doing research as well. And then I had gotten this this um, 
position it was called the Mary Ware uh, professorship teaching Jung in San Antonio. Um, and so I invited him to come do a lecture. So that's where I met him. And then he's just been a mentor ever, ever since his work is amazing. And, and uh, he, he did such great stuff there. So he was actually teaching classes to um, students at Texas A&M uh, undergraduates and graduate students as part of the Macmillan professorship back then. But when it transferred to, so he retired and then, the school, for whatever reason, decided it didn't want to continue that position. Mm -hmm. And so it transformed over to the Jung Center where I, I, I became uh, the, the first Macmillan scholar. So, I, you know, it's not affiliated with the university. Uh, so we're, um, and it's, you know, the Jung Center in Houston is really... Um, it really just provides education to anyone who's interested in Jung. It, it doesn't have their own uh, training programs. It doesn't do research. It's not a university. So the Macmillan Scholar position had to, you know, it, it had to adapt to that environment. So the um, what the Macmillan Scholar does, um, we continue one thing in common between when it was at A&M and that's we have an annual speaker. It's called the Fay Lecture Series, where we have a prominent uh, Jungian analyst come and speak about a certain topic. And then that um, it happens over like a three day weekend once a year. And then that comes out as a book that gets published eventually. So there's a long history of these books. Uh, they're all published by Texas A&M Press, and we continue that relationship. Um, so I help um, in putting those together and editing those books, and um, that's probably my main main role as the Macmillan Scholar. But I also I do some teaching there as well, and uh, I write a little blog uh, that's uh, on this thing called the Jung Page, which um, is that that Jung Page is um, um, it's basically. Um, at, at the Jung Center. That's where it, um, it's maintained right now. Well, it's a fantastic blog. And I mentioned uh, three of your posts in the intro to this episode. Uh, but you have others as well. Uh, one on Marion Woodman, also one on Jung in the 21st century. And the one on Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and Carl Jung. I did not know that Jung's photo was on the cover of the Beatles album, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Neither did a lot of our listeners who messaged oh, me after seeing me. Yeah, after seeing me post a photo of that album cover in my Instagram <laughs> stories, I received a lot of messages from people shocked because they didn't know. So I will provide a link to your blog blog post. There's just not enough time to cover it here today. But if you yeah. would like to know the story behind it, read Dr. Escamilla's blog post. Yes, about, it's very interesting. It's a wonderful blog post. You cover so much, so many topics in that post, the collective unconscious and the the four members of the Beatles, which are reminding me of BTS. And you talk about persona. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. 
just to finish up what you were mentioning about the Fay Lecture Series, this year's speaker, uh, Dr. Nancy Swift Ferlotti, was my guest in episode 94, uh, which was recorded in October. She delivered the Fay Lectures in November. I also did an episode with Frank N. McMillan III in episode 91 about his father, who uh, wrote a book called Finding Young and also uh, created the Macmillan Institute for Jungian Studies, which is funding all this, is, is making all of this happen. It's, it's just wonderful what he set up uh, as his legacy. And then, of course, Dr. David Rosen was my guest in episode 93. That is a very popular episode. So, I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off about Sergeant Peppers, but if there's something you wanted to mention as we wrap up here, uh, please feel free. Yeah, no, no. I think um, I, I, I also love music. I, I play music and I'm a, a big Beatles fan. So that was a fun article for me to write. But you're, I mean, at that time, that was 1967 and they were like the major group uh, that a lot of people say that in the rock world that's you know the the when they rate best albums of all time mm-hmm. it's up there at the top but they they wanted to put um who they thought the most influential people in our culture were uh at that time and uh, so you can you can read that article to see why carl jung is up there um but yeah it does reflect on bts and you know um recently there they titled an album uh, um um Map, Map of the, of the soul, soul, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Persona. So they. So it's interesting that Jung, you know, it's it, he he's definitely in in popular culture back then. You know, sixty seven was just a few years after he died, and mm-hmm. um, he was on the cover of Time magazine, also like in yes. you know around the, you know late late in his life. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, Jung has so much to say about our culture and who we are as humans. So. Um, makes Reed sense that he would Jung. be on that. Yeah, Reed Jung. Reed I Jung. agree. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for for joining us here today. And I know we covered a lot. Uh, we had a lot of, I had a lot of distractions. There was a lot of noise. I'd like to tell mm. the listeners, I'm going to try to edit out as much as I possibly can, but there were sirens, jackhammers, wow. saws. I didn't hear any of it from my well, I'm side. Glad. So. I'm glad. I know the microphone <laughs> picked it up because I could see it on the meters. Yeah. So I will try I guess to that's edit the, it out. I, I guess that's the unconscious, like, <laughs> trying exactly. to break in. <laughs> exactly, right? Um, yeah, yeah. But... Um, and and so it goes, right? The unconscious is always uh, um, interfering a little bit with our ego dialogues. <laughs> Thank you again for joining us today, Dr. Escamilla. Thank you. Please visit the website, Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this crazy episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. Speaking of Jung is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. And it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device 
simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. Links to Amazon's new Echo devices, which are now on sale, can be found in the show notes. So with special thanks to Alexis O'Brien at the Taylor and Francis Group, to Robert Hinshaw of Diamond Furlog, and to Frank N. McMillan III. This is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Young.